0: Welcome to Nextworks Innovation Talks. Let our podcast inspire you with inside stories and conversations about innovation. Welcome to the Nextworks Innovation Talks. I'm your host, Laurence van Illigen, and today I'll be talking to Jeremy Lent. Jeremy is the author of the bestseller, The Pattern in Instincts, and the founder of the Lyology Institute which is dedicated to fostering an integrated worldview in order to enable humanity to thrive sustainably on Earth. Did I get that right, Jeremy?
1: You did. That's great.
0: (laughs) So welcome on the show. I just want to mention that knowing what you are focusing on today, which we will be discussing later, I was almost surprised to find out that you founded an Internet startup called NextCard's. If you could tell me about that period, how did it feel to experience the rise of the internet? And also, do you still feel the same way about that?
1: Mm. Yeah, thank you, Laurence. And I'm really happy to be in this conversation today. So thank you for that. And. Yes, it's true that really, if you will, my life actually took some significant changes Mm -hmm. from that period when I started an internet company to where I am right now. Mm -hmm. Because in fact, a lot of my writings right now actually focus on some of the dangers and downsides of the very kinds of work I was uh, involved in during that time. So yeah, I, I think that's a great place to begin. So yeah, actually... In the first part of my professional career, I got an MBA at the University of Chicago, the sort of school that's famous for its neoliberal economics, in fact. Um, And I started an internet company. As you said, there was an internet credit card company. In fact, it was the first company that ever allowed consumers to apply for a credit card online in real time and get approved right there in real time, even design their card. It was definitely an innovation during the first wave Of internet fever in the sort of 6 to 99 timeframe. I took the company public and it was a success for a while. And then some things happened in my life that changed my whole orientation considerably. My wife at the time, she passed away some years back, but she got very sick at the time. I left the company to look after her. The company collapsed within a year or so because it was really not mature enough to just sort of keep going without my being at the helm. And then my wife also began to have cognitive decline. So I sort of lost the relationship with the person I was really close to. And I went through a really deep spiritual sort of metamorphosis, if you will, really asking what my life was about. And my writings since then have been really the result of a long journey I undertook to really ask myself deep questions about meaning. So that early experience in my life, being in business, taking the company public, it did teach me a lot. And it gave me a lot of sort of raw material to understand, not just in terms of my own life, but also to understand how easy it is to kind of believe in what you're doing, to essentially sort of drink your own Kool-Aid, if you will, (laughs) and how valuable it is to open up perspectives to sort of wider horizons.
0: Okay, so before we move on, just you spoke about meaning, but during the first period of the internet, what did you think that the impact of the internet would be? Because I think that people at the time thought that the world was going to be more connected, and the internet was going to make the world a much better place, and. In some ways it has, but obviously not in in every way. What did you think about it then and how did it change over the years?
1: Yeah, well, there was a great sense of excitement during that time. And I, I was right there in Silicon Valley, right when companies like Amazon and Yahoo were just beginning to sort of take off. And although I wasn't actually in tech myself, I was actually coming more from the consumer credit area. But I sort of interfaced with that sort of tech domain. So yes, there was this sense that this was a absolute paradigm shift, and a sense that the internet was going to transform how humans really connected as a global community. And honestly, I think that has not just happened, but I think we're just in the very earliest phase of what really could turn out to be one of the greatest transformations in the entire human experience, perhaps even maybe as significant as the sort of emergence of writing a few millennia ago. And you could, it's potential, this is kind of a bit of a mind-blower, but it's potential, it could even be as big as the invention of language in terms of where the internet might take us over years, and not just, just the next few years, but over decades to come. So I think it's hugely important. And of course, right now, as you mentioned, we're only too aware of the downsides of what has arisen with the internet, the siloization, how people just get caught into silos. But above all, I think it really was crystallized by this documentary that just came out recently on Netflix called The Social Dilemma, um, mm-hmm. which lots of people are talking about, really showing some of the incredible existential dangers that arise from the internet. But I think the crucial point that yeah, I'd like to talk about more in this conversation, maybe, is that in my view, it's not the internet itself that is bringing these dangers, but the internet within the context of the global capitalist system, where companies, once they begin to gain traction, once they're, as they're for-profit companies who follow the capitalist mantra of only maximizing shareholder profit above all else... That is where the power of the internet gets fused with the what I would see as a pathological focus on maximizing profit at the expense of any other aspect of human experience or any other value. And those two things together, the power of that data management and the ability for these companies to kind of colonize our minds, along with the desire for profit is what I think has become so toxic and so dangerous. Mm
0: -hmm. So for the people who don't already know you, maybe we could circle back to your core message of the patterning instinct. How did this patterning instinct allow human species to
1: thrive? The patterning instinct is actually the name of the book that I published a couple of years ago. And the subtitle of that is A Cultural History of humanity's search for meaning. So to your point, as I did a lot of research to understand where humans derive meaning from, I did begin to realize from looking at things like cognitive neuroscience and cognitive anthropology and evolutionary biology, that we humans do have this instinct to pattern meaning into the universe that is more powerful in us than, as far as we know, than other mammals. And what cognitive scientists explain is that this is actually coming from a more developed prefrontal cortex in the human brain than is in other mammals. And this prefrontal cortex basically is developed has evolved to connect up all the different parts of the brain, all the different parts of our conscious experience and unconscious experience and actually pattern meaning into that. And the reason we can call that an instinct is, well, even an infant who's just newly born ends up, she learns language and nobody tells her you're meant to learn language, but she uses that instinct that she has to pattern all the different sounds and feelings and touches and everything that happens to her and begin to learn a language based on those patterns that she experiences. And if you look back as humans first evolved as modern humans, hundreds of thousands and even millions of years ago, some of our hominid ancestors, that instinct was there when they looked out into the universe and they just saw everything happening around them. And that same instinct to pattern meaning drove them to try to make sense out of things. So they'd look at the sky and all the stars and they'd pattern constellations in there. And then they'd also pattern meaning into everything around them based on, and this is crucially important, on like core metaphors. So ultimately, the way in which we sort of make meaning out of things is we start off with our embodied tangible experience of life and then we start to make abstractions on that. So the hunter-gatherers, for example... Would look at nature and they saw nature as like a giving parent because they saw their lives as being living in kin, in like extended families and tribes. And so from that, they saw all of nature as being relatives. And each different shift in the human experience from hunter gatherer times onwards has led to different core metaphors. And what's so fascinating, what I traced in, in this book, The Padding Instinct, is that those ways in which cultures makes sense of the universe, leads to actually the value system of that culture. And those values are what actually drive history. So what we see is that history is not just a matter of sort of one thing happening after another or things based just on geography or whatever, but it's actually based on the way in which cultures have made meaning out of the universe.
0: When you talk about all of this, you also often talk about the difference between the Asian point of view and, for instance, the European-like The Asian one is more connected, holistic and harmonic, while the European core metaphor is based on a dualistic sense. Can you elaborate on that? And also, how do you think that they grew parts? Is it because they were in different environments? Or how did this split happen, do you think? Yeah,
1: what a great question. Yeah, well, that was one of the themes that I began to distill in my research. And one of the sort of big themes of this book, The Patterning Instinct, is looking exactly as you say, how if you look way back when, hunter-gatherers around the world, they could be in rainforests in Africa or they could be in the far north in the tundra. They still had a fundamentally similar way of making sense of the universe. And similarly, when early agrarian civilizations first arose, even though they might have very different ways in which they manifested, they fundamentally saw the universe in a kind of same sort of way of a hierarchy of the gods and different sort of elements about that. But what I sort of highlight in the book is that about 2,500 years ago, you see this split happening between the ways in which East Asian cultures, in particular China, but not just China, made sense of the world and the way in which Western thinking arising basically with ancient Greece saw the world in a different way. And as you mentioned, the big split there is that in East Asia, the underlying metaphor, if you will, that they built from was a sense of nature as a kind of a harmonic web of life. So they actually followed from the early hunter-gatherer times of thinking, seeing nature as being a connected, complex web. And they saw that everything that happened in that related to everything else. So the idea of the sort of seeing nature as a web, it makes sense if you think about how if you're just kind of walking in the forest or something and you see a spider's web. And you know that just the tiniest leaf or just a tiniest drop of water sends resonances through the entire web. So you can see it sort of vibrate uh, right the way through from any one touch. And similarly, the Chinese saw all the universe in that way, so that everyone's actions had these kind of ripples through the rest of the cosmos, if you will, through heaven and earth. And they developed these ideas like the Tao, which is the way in which nature sort of manifested itself through this web. If you believe that's what the universe is like, then it's natural to think that the thing you should do as a human being and as your civilization is to harmonize with that, is to sort of resonate with those vibrations in the most successful way. But in the West, starting with the ancient Greeks, there was this very different way of thinking about the cosmos as more of the kind of a split cosmos, a sense that there was like a heaven up above, the sense of like an eternal realm where everything was perfect and unchanging. And then there was this kind of polluted earth down below where everything was always changing. And the best you could do in this kind of polluted area down below is to try to simulate as close as you could that perfection up above. And even the human person was seen as being split in the same sort of way, with a soul and a body. Mm -hmm. And the body was polluted, and the soul was this kind of seat of reason that connected us with divinity. And so there was this split within yourself and a split in the universe. And that split led to a lot of the patterns of thought we've seen in the West versus this harmonic way of connecting in East Asia led to a very different path in the history of East Asia. So that's what defines that split. And to your question, how did that split actually happen? Mm -hmm. Well, that's really kind of a profound question. I don't think anyone has the full answer to that, but what some cognitive anthropologists have come to believe, and it makes sense to me, is that the ways in which people's subsistence worked, the way the sort of lifestyle people led actually had an impact on the way they made sense of things. Mm -hmm. So for example, you discovered that in China, where there was a lot of rice farming. In order to farm rice, you need to work really together as a collective. No single farmer or family can farm rice very well because they need to actually all get together as a group during certain times of the year in order to prepare the fields properly and the irrigation, everything like that. So there's almost the sense that life becomes this harmonic way of working with each other as a collective. Whereas in the West, you see more wheat farming, where you can actually be quite successful just as an individual family working on your own. And you also get more, for example, in ancient Greece, there was a lot of fishing and herding, which leads to more sort of individualist way of seeing things. But above all, I've actually come to my own personal theory, and it's not more than a theory, I'm personally convinced by it, is that I think this dualistic way of seeing this split between like, mind and body and a split between human and the rest of the world might have come actually from the ancestors of the ancient Greeks, who are known as the Proto-Indo-European horsemen, who were the first people thousands of years ago to actually domesticate the horse on the steppes, in the Caucasian steppes. And My own sense is that that power of actually recognizing that as humans, we could control this huge, wild, powerful beast that was a horse, using our sort of mind to control this huge body, led to the sense of the power of the mind over the body and a sense of the separation between the two. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is when you look at the different cultures that came from those Proto-Indo-European horsemen, which include the Indian culture, as well as the Zoroastrian, as well as the ancient Greeks, they all use the metaphor of the human person as being like somebody riding a chariot driven by horses, Mm -hmm. and the control of the horse is what comes out of the person's conscious reason. So that's where I have this view.
0: Well, I think I once heard in a podcast where they were talking about Eastern philosophy, and I just wondered, that made me think of the fact that The roots of the Eastern philosophy and that of the ancient Greeks and of the West is very different, apparently. Like, he was talking about Confucius and Lao Tzu, and that they actually both were trying to solve very practical problems, like how is leadership and how can we solve political problems, things like that. While the Greek philosophers, apparently... We're more busy with metaphysics, with how is the world structured, who are we, things like that. And when you think about both systems of thoughts, both ways of seeing the world, when you are actually trying to solve real-life problems, you have to think in a connected way. You have to think very practically. You have to think about the context. Well, if you're thinking about metaphysics, it's more pure imagination, more creative and Apparently, someone once told me that the difference in the way that the Chinese are busy with AI and innovation and in Silicon Valley is a bit the same because apparently, in artificial intelligence in Silicon Valley, they are much more experimenting with creative AI, while the AI approach in China, for instance, is a lot more solving practical problems for customers and also very context driven.
1: Could that also be a part of it? Well, that certainly makes sense because one of the things that cultural psychologists have seen very clearly is that even to this day, even these patterns of thought that developed millennia ago, still true to this day that people in East Asia are much more context sensitive Mm -hmm. in when they look at any situation than people in the West who are much more individual sensitive and see things more in their essence. And see things separately. There's this great test, actually, that people have given to children in different cultures, which I actually talk about in the book, in The Patterning Instinct, is imagine that you see three pictures these kids are given. And the pictures are a picture of a chicken, a cow, and grass. And the question that these kids are asked is, which two go together? Now, People in the West uh, tend to say, well, the two things that go together are the chicken and the cow. Both of them are animals, whereas grass is not. But people in East Asia will say the two things that go together is the cow and the grass because the cow eats the grass. Mm -hmm. So... You see in this simple test how in the West, people think in terms of separate categories of things. Mm -hmm. They kind of essentialize things like animals versus grass or whatever. And in the East, people tend to look more about the relationship between things. So the cow is eating the grass. So that's just an example. And there's many other tests that show the same thing. What's interesting about that is that these patterns of thought that might have evolved and differentiated thousands of years ago continue to this very day. So it just shows how powerful those are in shaping how each new generation makes sense of things. And that's partly because of the human patterning instinct, which patterns meaning according to the culture that a person grows up in.
0: So you seem to prefer the more holistic, connected way of seeing things. One of the reasons is obviously that it has more respect for nature and for the environment. But is the dualistic perspective All
1: that bad? Yeah, well, that's the thing. Actually, to some degree, when you read my book, it might come out that I'm sort of rooting for the kind of connected systems way of looking at things versus the dualistic way. But it's more that I believe that currently our global civilization, based on Western ways of thinking, has become so unbalanced that the only way in which things are seen is from that dualistic, separate point of view. And so really what I'm advocating is not so much saying that that is bad and the connected way of seeing things is good, but more that we need to rebalance those two different ways of making sense of the world. So I'm not advocating in any respect that we reject Mm -hmm. um, many of the core underlying things of great value that have arisen in the last few centuries from that dualistic way of thinking, which has led to the scientific revolution, has led to incredible technologies, and all kinds of developments of meaning-making and philosophy that we can all be grateful for. But at the same time, that way of thinking has also led to some very, very destructive traits. It's led to the sense of humans being separate from nature which has led to what's sometimes known as human supremacy, this belief that the rest of nature just exists in order to be a resource for humans, in order to be exploited by humans. And it's led to the sense of humans as being not just separate from nature, but separate from each other, and that the individual being the sort of core way of making sense out of things, which has led to this hyper-individualism and this growth of capitalism as an economic system that hasn't just led to the vast destruction of nature with frightening consequences, but also led to a terrible alienation that we have as human beings now in the modern world. So this incredible fragmentation of society and the sense of people being separate from each other and the loss of some of the core values that arise from the fact that humans thrive from connectedness. So more than anything, I'm advocating actually a more of an integrated worldview that doesn't jettison our modern scientific dualistic ways of thinking, but sort of complements that with a more connected systems way of understanding things.
0: So what would a better system look like? Uh,
1: Well, I think a better system would be one that actually did recognize our connectedness rather than starting from this sense of humans as being separate. So that's just from a very sort of foundational point of view. But if you ask about what does that actually mean in real life, fundamentally it would mean actually transforming some of the ways in which our society works. We talked at the beginning of this conversation about how the internet itself had all this great potential and now we've seen some of the worst, most toxic elements of it coming through. But I think if we expand that scope more, one of the things that is so pervasive in our society right now that we don't even get to realize it is that for a number of decades now, there's been a sort of a neoliberal worldview that has become dominant. The sense that humans are fundamentally separate individuals and that the best thing for the world is to have these free markets where each individual can try to just act selfishly for themselves because that leads to the best outcome for all. And really this complete obliteration of the sense of humans as being living in a living earth, but just seeing all of nature as being this resource. And I think those are the fundamentals that have to shift. And along with that, we have to look at the fact that this system of global capitalism that has allowed these Massive transnational corporations to essentially dominate virtually every aspect of our lives is a system that is leading to the incredible destruction of the natural world. It's leading to a spiritual emptying out of the human experience. And if continuing to go in this direction for long enough, it could eventually lead to the actual collapse of our global civilization and just an absolute devastation for pretty much all of us. So I feel these are very important things to look at. And they're such big issues that oftentimes people don't even go there because they just seem to be too big to even take a look at. But we need to see how some of these fundamental patterns are taking place right now.
0: Mm -hmm. So you already talked about globalism and about the internet, but why do you think it is that globalism or the internet did not diminish our tendency to dualistic thinking, because you would think that creating more connections and more scale would allow us to better perceive and understand the network that we live in, as well as its consequences. But instead, both have increased complexity, as obviously happens when connections grow. But our response is above all driven by populism and by simplification. Why do you think that happens?
1: I agree with you and that you would expect, just looking at the concepts alone, things like globalization and the internet, that that would lead to a greater amount of connectivity. But again, I think what we have to do is look at the context in which all these developments take place, which is the context of global capitalism. Mm -hmm. And when I talk about global capitalism, basically, it's quite a, a simple thing. First off, we need to recognize that the global cooperation is far and away the most powerful vehicle for change and anything else that happens in our world today. In fact, if you look at the top 100 economies of the world, believe it or not, that 69 out of that top 100 are actually global corporations rather than countries. They're so powerful. And when you look at how corporations are actually set up, they are set up legally to do just one thing, to maximize one thing at the expense of anything else, which is to increase shareholder value, which means increasing shareholder profits at an ever-increasing rate year after year after year. So as these corporations are set up in this way, they look at everything that develops, not in terms of how can this be better for humanity or how can this be better for humans connecting with the earth, but basically, how can we make more money out of this, which really translates into when you're looking at how humans relate to the earth in general, it goes, um, how can we turn the living earth into natural resources and to basically exploit that and monetize that? So everything is about destroying what's there to maximize the money you gain. And similarly, when, say, like the Silicon Valley companies that are now so big, when they relate to human, so it's not just a matter of the living earth, but human beings, they say the same thing, not like, oh, how can we connect people up in ways that will make them happier? But they say, how can we monetize the experiences that people have when they're relating to us? And it turns out the best way to monetize that is to basically get people addicted to using their various iPhones and devices so that then advertising can be sold to them. And the more you can get them to be uncomfortable and the more you can get them to feel insecure, the more you can get them to be hooked into that sort of next thumbs up sign they'll see on their iPhone or whatever, and then make money from their sort of eyeballs uh, through advertising. So the whole point about this is that the driving force, the underlying motivation of these corporations as they relate to humans and the earth is not to try to harmonize, but to try to essentially suck the life out and turn it into profit. And um, that's what I began to recognize as I started to look at how the underlying system that we live in works.
0: Who do you think that should drive the change? Who should try to fix this imbalance? Is this something that should come from, I don't know, bottom-up? Or is it governments that need to drive the change? Or who should do it?
1: Yeah, um, ultimately, I think, When you look at our global system, what we see is is very interconnected. And as a result of that, I think the change has to happen actually at multiple levels. But in each case, the change has to begin with us as human beings who actually care about our lives and care about values and care about the world. So the change really has to begin with each of us. And oftentimes it has to begin with each of us recognizing the ways of thinking that our dominant culture has put into our minds and seeing the ways in which some of these core underlying metaphors and some of these core ways of making sense actually are not necessarily just the truth. There's other ways of making sense of things. And really looking at what do we care about? Do we care about how much status we get from more sort of thumbs-up signs or the next material thing that we buy? Or do we actually care about the feeling we get when we're connected with our family? Or do we care about the feeling we get when we're actually going for a hike in nature and being connected with the earth around us and starting to live our lives more according to what feels more valuable to us? But that change can only happen when we start to connect with other people who have similar feelings of discontent about that. And ultimately, the change does have to happen at the top as well. But the change will only happen at the top when leaders begin to realize that the people who vote them in or the people that they're trying to control through one way or another actually are demanding different ways of doing things and different ways of seeing things.
0: Do you think that the current pandemic could be a trigger for that change? Or do you think that people, they are maybe a little bit less afraid that things have normalized again? Or or how do you see this?
1: The way I see the pandemic is really, it's a little bit like just the first of many, probably even more powerful and scary disturbances that we're going to experience as a global society over the next few decades however damaging and you know, freaky this whole pandemic has been, the disturbances we're going to get from climate breakdown as the years go on are going to be far, far greater than what we've been experiencing in the last year. I think if some years from now, we might look back and say, oh, you remember how sweet it was that we were all so disturbed? We had to like, be stuck at home. And I think that each of these disturbances... Really tends to really cause this system that is so self destructive to kind of unravel a little bit more. So, right now, we see, for example, the incredible inequalities in wealth that are just really egregious and have never been so extreme in all of history. In fact, right now, they're so extreme that the wealthiest 26 billionaires in the world own as much wealth as half of the entire world's population, the lowest half of the total world population. And they've just become even more extreme from the pandemic. So people who are already vulnerable, they're even more vulnerable economically, they're vulnerable physically to the coronavirus. And those who are already more affluent are just making even more money from these breaks. So what I see is as these things that have kept the system together begin to unravel more and more, it can be both terrifying because it can actually lead us closer and closer to this potential for our, really our entire civilization to even collapse. But it also leads to the potential for people to reevaluate their value system and to reevaluate what's going on and to actually look at a vision for what could be a very different system one that could actually lead to a more flourishing Earth. So I think it's unknowable right now which direction we're going to go in. But one thing is clear is that for virtually every human being on this planet, and for the rest of life on this planet, we'll be much happier if we can turn this system around to one that leads to more harmonization with the Earth and more flourishing.
0: So, Do you expect more disturbances and polarization and people rising up against inequality before things get better? Is it going to get worse and a lot worse before things get better, do you think? Um,
1: Yeah, I'm afraid that we are going to see a lot more lurching and a lot more disturbances probably before things get better. We just have to look at the simple recognition of climate breakdown and the fact that right now, even if we were to look at the policies that the nations of the world have agreed to, to try to mitigate climate breakdown, we'd still be heading towards roughly a three degree Celsius rise above pre-industrial norms this century, mm-hmm. which will lead to absolute catastrophic breakdowns in our global system. We're talking about things like, obviously, urban areas being flooded, but far more extreme is... The incredible droughts, incredible fires, incredible floods, just the acidification of the ocean and leading to the loss of coral reefs, the likelihood that the Amazon rainforest itself, which is really viewed sometimes as the lungs of the earth, because it had played such a big role in oxygenating our planet. Scientists are warning it may already be close to this threshold where it goes from rainforest to savanna, at some point in the next few decades, it might turn into a searing desert. We're looking at the potential for hundreds of millions of climate refugees who can no longer survive in places where they're living right now, trying to move to other areas where there's still the potential to grow crops, but then being kept out by populations that want to maintain some level of stability for themselves. So we're looking at the potential for just terrifying breakdowns in our global system. But a lot of that could be stopped if there was enough will by the population at large in the world, enough awareness and enough will to demand that our governments change their approaches.
0: What do you think needs to happen for that? Do you think they really need to feel the impacts of the problems or will this happen sooner?
1: Well, I think one thing that people need is there needs to be much more awareness that we cannot keep going with business as usual. There's a lot of people like to talk about the idea of sort of green growth, if you will, where mm-hmm. um, people say, well, if we use technology wisely, then we can continue to keep growing our economies, but do it in such a way that is not going to lead to this climate breakdown or not going to lead to the devastation of the living earth. But studies have shown unequivocally that that's not the case, that in fact, it's like a myth that is nice to believe in, but simply not true, that we need to actually stop this reliance, this is the almost religious fervor in which... Our countries rely on growing our gross domestic product, our GDP, from one year to the next. We need to find different forms of stabilizing our economies so that we can actually live in more of a steady state. So that involves like deep transitions of our actual economies and the ways in which we live. Those who are aware of these problems have to get other people to become more aware of them and break through this kind of consensus trance, if you will, that everything seems to be okay. So I think that um, we've seen in the last couple of years, for example, uh, centered in the UK, but really all over the world, things like the Extinction Rebellion, grassroots movements trying to get people to wake up, or the school children's movement that Greta Thunberg has led to really get people to understand the house is on fire. We need to do something drastically. And there's another group called the Climate Mobilization centered in the US, but it has been coordinating a lot of cities and counties and even nations around the world to declare a climate emergency so that there's this kind of official recognition that this is an emergency. This is not just something where we look at incremental change, but we have to fundamentally change things. So I think that that awareness is taking place around the world, but it has to be at a far greater level and intensity than it has been so far to shift the forces that want to maintain business as usual.
0: So I want to circle back a bit to the disturbances and also about the difference between the East and the West. So The underlying culture and philosophy of the East is a lot more balanced, a lot more harmonic and connected. But this does unfortunately not necessarily mean that their society is just as balanced. Like take China, it's not exactly a democracy, and they are also dealing with enormous environmental problems like air pollution and water pollution. And it's true, they may be responding to these problems a lot more forceful and quickly than over here. But that's because they actually don't have a choice. If you can't go outside because the air is too polluted, you have to change your behavior. But still, the point is that their connected thinking did not exactly help them avoid these environmental problems. How do you see this?
1: That is completely true. And I'm glad you raised that question, Laurence. And the way to make sense of this apparent contradiction is actually something I discuss in my introduction to this book, The Patterning Instinct, is when we look at the different ways in which, as I said, cultures make sense of the world and how that shapes history... We also see how that ways in which the sort of cultural, mainstream way of thinking can be very, very stable over a long period of time. But those ways of thinking can get transformed quite quickly. And what tr- tends to transform them is when the system that was associated with that way of thinking begins to totally unravel, or begins to like they essentially get demolished. Now, if you look at the history of China. You see for millennia this Confucian or this kind of harmonic way of looking at life. And then you see in the 19th century, the Western powers coming into China with things like the Opium War and other forms of quasi-colonization and humiliate and basically destroy that system that had been working ever since then. And so if you look at the 20th century, you'll see that new generations of Chinese people grew up saying, what our parents told us was complete crap. Like, this is, you know, we've got to reject that. And they actually looked to Western ways of thinking to actually incorporate that in their own model, because they saw that as being successful. So in the early 20th century, they believed in this kind of notion of neo-Darwinism, and you know, which this notion that you had to be powerful to be successful. And then in the mid 20th century, they turned to another Western notion, which was Marxism and communism, and came out with the Chinese version of that of basically Maoism. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, by the 1980s, when Deng Xiaoping looked at how China was losing out to the West, China basically transformed and they inculcated those Western values of human supremacy, exploitation of natural resources, growth economy, sort of uber-capitalism, they took those values and just kind of went even more doubling down on those set of values in the West. So now, the last few decades, we've seen the country with the highest growth rates, the country that's moved to the greatest inequalities, the shift in inequality, countries that have exploited nature and caused greatest pollution, and right now, the greater emissions of carbon all that is China. So what we see is that when a society begins to unravel, new ways of thinking can very rapidly take over, as happened in China. And while that's kind of terrifying when we look at how China now pollutes the world even more extensively than other countries, where that gives me personally hope is this realization that right now, worldwide, this global system that has been so destructive is unraveling. And so just like you saw that shift in China where new generations said, we reject what our parents told us, we're going to find a new way of making meaning. Similarly, I think across the world, people in school children age and in their 20s and even in their 30s are looking at the world they've inherited from the older generations and saying, this is screwed up. This is a mess. We don't accept this value system. We're going to look for something different. And when enough people are actually asking those questions and looking for something different, the potential for change, for rapid change, can be enormous.
0: Well, thank you for that. Maybe just one last question. Um, You're writing a new book called The Web of Meaning. Could you talk a bit about that, or is it too soon?
1: Oh, no, it's a good time to talk about it. I've actually completed the writing of it, and it's going to be published actually next June, So I'm excited about that coming out. And the full title of this new book is The Web of Meaning, and the subtitle is Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe. Mm -hmm. And really, the book, in many ways, is like a sequel to The Patterning Instinct. So this book, The Patterning Instinct, looked at the different ways in which cultures have made sense of the universe from hunter-gatherer times all the way to the present. And it shows how our present way of making sense of the universe, this kind of dualistic paradigm based on separation, has led to all of these imbalances that I've been describing in this conversation. So this new book, The Web of Meaning, actually looks at a different way of making sense of the universe, one that's actually based on connection rather than separation. And what it shows is that modern findings in science such as system sciences and complexity science and evolutionary biology, actually show that they point to the same underlying sense that we're all connected and that everything is connected, that some of the great ancient wisdom traditions also saw. And we can be looking at um, indigenous traditions around the world or Taoism or Buddhism. And many of these different cultures also came from the similar understanding and it shows that some of the foundational ways in which things we take for granted in the world today, humans are selfish, or that evolution is driven by selfish genes, or that uh, humans are separate from nature, or nature is a machine. These are some of these fundamental presumptions that have driven our world. It shows how modern science shows that those things are actually wrong. So they're not just dangerous, but they're wrong. And it begins to make sense of the world in a more connected way. So that some of the key questions we ask as human beings, like who am I, why am I, how should I live, lead to very different answers, which could lead to a worldview that could truly lead us to more of a sustainable and flourishing way of living on Earth.
0: Okay, well, thank you. That's actually a beautiful note to end our conversation on, finding our place in the universe. So thank you so much for joining us on the next Works Innovation Talks, Jeremy. And good luck with your new book.
1: You're welcome, Laurence. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you very much. This was NextWorks Innovation Talks. Thank you so much for joining us. And follow us on nextworks.com if you're hungry for more innovation news and events.